in the book, I write about the empathy challenge as this exercise in deep listening. It's easy not to realize that you have your own internal frames all the time, and all of us have a way that we're already framing our work. Black people have a harder time negotiating deals that are as good as white people. Everyone who feels less powerful or less privileged holds back for lots of different reasons. I didn't know that Hispanic agencies get lower fees for advertising than mainstream agencies, and it makes me mad. And I guess I'm also not surprised. Clear, the podcast for people who give a shit about advertising. I am your host, Francisco Cárdenas, principal of digital and social strategy at the Dallas, Texas-based omnicultural advertising agency, Lerma. If you're joining us for the first time, this podcast aims to bring a different perspective into the marketing and advertising business by debunking or reframing anything that we've settled to understand as the norm. Discussing topics from trends, to creative, to media, and technology, and even challenging the business model we currently operate on as ad agencies. In production, as always, we have Rolf Ruiz, who's with us. Now today, I could not be more excited, and what a delight. Our guest is Zoe Chance, a professor I was fortunate enough to meet at Yale School of Management during a project with our client, Avocados from Mexico, and our constant pursuit of innovation. Zoe came to us talking about how to use influence and persuasion. What good is innovation or creativity or anything for that matter if you are not able to influence others? Zoe's credentials are amazing. She is a writer, teacher, researcher, and climate philanthropist. Thank you, Zoe, for doing that. Her best-selling book, which we'll talk about is called The Influence is Your Superpower. Zoe, you don't know how much I needed to read that. So thank you for that too. You already know it all, Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, no, it, it was really enlightening. Zoe, as you heard her voice, she's a doctorate from Harvard. Her course, Yale Master in Influence and Persuasion is one of the most popular, if not the most popular course amongst those students seeking for enlightenment. In the past, Zoe has worked on Barbie, a $200 million segment, which, by the way, if you guys saw it, had a presence at the Super Bowl this year as an influencer. And then she has also worked, you know, or helped companies like Google figure out their food policy. Zoe, I asked you to be here and you said yes. So thank you. Thank you, Francisco. No, no, no. Thank you. And I, I think it was it was awesome, like after reading the book and you standing up, like, you know, asking you on chapter three and a half <laughs> in this podcast and you saying yes. You you make it easy to say yes. <laughs> you make it hard to say no. <laughs> so and I was telling you earlier, I would have said yes to you anyway. But it was very easy to say yes to this podcast because of the Lerma agency's focus on diversity and inclusion and actually being willing to take a stand. And because of the rebel nature of the whole show, like people who give a shit about advertising and marketing, right? It's yeah. appealing and it's very human. Yes, thank you. I think it aligns a lot with the thinking of, of what you do and, you know, what you propose. So where did your passion for influence start? I guess I became interested in influence because I sucked at it so much. I was so shy and so uninfluential growing up. And I was, you know, I was a kid and wanting to make friends and being very self-conscious and, and quiet. And I didn't know that that was the real reason. My theory for why people talked over me and didn't listen to me is that my voice was the same frequency as the ambient sounds of the universe. So that gives you an idea of how nerdy I was. And that also the nerdiness is probably what led me to study it. But what was also going on at the same time as growing up shy, quiet, talked over, part of the reason for my shyness and self-consciousness was that I felt like I didn't belong because my mom, to her credit, 
had moved us to an area that had really good school, a school district that was great. So I had wonderful public schools, but we were the poorest people that we knew. And when my mom and dad split up, my mom was an art teacher and we had a one bedroom apartment and my sister and I are sharing the bedroom. My mom slept on a futon in the living room where my friends had not just their own room, but they had swimming pools and sailboats and drove jaguars and had vacation homes and went on safaris and things like that. So this is a big reason that I have been for much of my career and definitely now not just wanting to have more influence and understand how to have influence, but to be able to really empower other people and particularly those who are not already privileged. And that's why I wrote the book, so I could spread the ideas outside of Yale. That is wonderful. And thank you, thank you for doing that. It definitely comes through in the book. I mean, I think what makes it so powerful is also how you sprinkle in your life experience. Because, and, you know, people can talk about the theory, but you put it into that, into practice and how you've learned it through through the years really, really makes it really makes it powerful. And bring, Thank it, you. bring into life the academic narrative. Thank uh, you. And I think this is something a lot of people misunderstand about influence, that it really happens from human to human. And so if we're trying to influence someone without bringing the human part of us, we're really not going to be as effective as we could. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, you know, in, in, the, in the ad world, creative directors, you know, you would think that a lot of it is academic or just the spark of their witness, but a lot of it is human experience, if not most of it, and, and how they bring that to life in, in a message and trying to connect and influence people. Yeah. Yeah, and I I don't think we've talked about, but I actually used to be married to ad guy on the creative side. My first oh. marriage, it was my starter marriage. <laughs> he was an art director. Oh, I and didn't know. Yeah, so I got to hear a lot of the behind the scenes conversations. And then, of course, when I worked as a brand manager at Mattel, I got to be on the client side working with ad agencies. We worked with Ogilvy. So I've been very interested in the pitch part of it and how you present ideas and how to get them to go through. And there's so just, I find it fascinating that you can be the most brilliant creative person, but if you don't have the influence skills, then your brilliant ideas are never going to come to life. Yeah, how many ideas die on the road to even be presented, right? And then right. or any died in the presentation itself. Right. So, Super interesting. At the beginning of your book, you talked you talked about that like that that kind of look that, that the horse has when when they when they know what they want to do or know where they're. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I love this word. And I I told you already I'm a nerd and I got really fascinated in this book that was a biography of Genghis Khan. And in this book his name has the same root as this Mongolian word you just said, Tamul. And it Tamul describes creative passion and ambition that will strive for what it wants, just powered by its own desire, regardless of what anyone says that you should do. And I love this concept and I really have struggled with this challenge of desire when I'm teaching influence because lots of people love the workshops and the courses that I teach but then many times after I teach a workshop someone will come up to me and in the hallway whisper I want to use these tools but what if I don't know what I want and so this is why I addressed it early on in the book that an influence can't tell you what you want. It can only help you get what you want. So what do you do when you're trying to figure that out? And a lot of people who come to Yale, not just for the MBA program, but for all of our executive programs, lots of them are in a transition where they're trying to figure out. And now in the country, many people are in a transition, you know, whether it's the great resignation or reset or whatever we want to call it. There's so many people trying to figure out what is my next step and what is it that I really, really want? So in the book, I encourage experimenting. Yeah, I mean, I love that because when I when I read that, my first reaction was, okay, if, if you're so clear and so focused on what you want, 
does that in a way blind you to other opportunities in the process of a negotiation? But you bring it to life afterwards where you say, and a little bit of what you're saying right now is no. I mean, within the process of negotiation, the flexibility and how what you want unveils and how, you know, with a magic question and, and, and you know, just discovering what 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 you can do better what you can do better for the other part it really really puts you in focus on 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 your temul or your opportunity right it's such a good point i actually hadn't made that connection myself i think of temul as an internal thing where you need to know what your heart wants regardless of what your head wants but when you're saying that just plowing ahead regardless well regardless of the situation or context or opportunities or other people can blind you to all of these other things that could be even better i completely agree and i've certainly been in that situation myself at times and i've seen other people do that and now like literally even when i'm praying when it's just this this private process where i'm expressing my desires i always tag them with or something even better in case there's some even better opportunity that might come up because I don't want to be blind to that. Right, you don't want to get stuck and, and yeah, especially in the creative process, you're always discovering it's like, oh, I never thought of that. And that could be a better option. Having that focus, but being flexible to, to other things also yeah. might be beneficial. And in creative collaborations, you have to be open to even better ideas, right? right. And one thing that I love to recommend to people who are wanting to be even more creative than they already are is to practice by taking an improv class because it not only gets you into that subconscious part of creative part of your mind beyond the gatekeeper that normally stops you from saying things to this place of very deep creativity it trains you to be open-minded to other people's ideas through the process that they they call yes and so somebody else throws out an idea and you can't deny the idea you can't ignore the idea all you're allowed to do is add to that idea i love that yeah, that's something we should practice more often. It's it's harder when you're in the process and you have deadlines, but it is something that normally ends up in a in, in something powerful and, and magnificent when you add to others' thoughts. Yeah, yeah, you should ask the agency <laughs> to fund it. I actually got into it at Mattel because they hired an improv teacher to come and teach improv for us. And one of the funniest pieces of doing this is that the the people who were the most funny and creative weren't who I would have expected. It wasn't actually the people who were hired to be creative, like the actual creatives, but it was people like an ops guy and an engineer who were so funny, but they had been holding themselves back. They had had a gatekeeper, so we didn't know how funny they were. And they were able to take away the gatekeeper to just say whatever weird thing. And weird is funny, right? Weird is really funny. Oh, and yes. a, a number of the creative people actually weren't able to completely eliminate the gatekeeper partly because they were used to sharing ideas and so they were still internally vetting them. It was more difficult. Yeah, you put it, it's a it's a form of insecurity, right? And especially when you are exposed to other people who perhaps are secretly super creative but don't bring that to the to the workplace when you give the opportunity that you unveil these rock stars. Yeah, exactly. So, so I'm, I'm inclined to talk about the gator and the judge, which to, to me is is like we all have one, those two systems that you discussed about. Can, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm absolutely convinced that this framework or dichotomy is the most important thing we need to understand in order to be more influential with other people and even with ourselves. And this framework is from behavioral economics, which is my research background, as you know, Francisco. Behavioral economists call these two pieces, system one and system two. It's just not sticky and it's hard to remember. So I teach them as the gator and the judge. The idea is that there's part of our mind that's unconscious and it operates in predictable ways. It is very, 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 very lazy 
It's efficient. It's fast. It takes no effort whatsoever. All of our emotions are located there. All of our habitual decisions, because it's unconscious, we don't even know that these processes are happening. We don't feel very much of it, and we neglect or just don't even realize how important this part is compared to the other part. So, so the unconscious part is like an alligator, and and alligators are. One of their key features is that they're super lazy and they ignore almost everything. And just one <laughs> little trivia fact on that is they can go up to three years without eating anything at all. That's how lazy they are. And then on the other side, the analogy that I use is the judge, and this is the part that's conscious and it tries to be making objective, rational decisions, taking in the evidence and information and data. And the problem is that we imagine that this part of our brain and other people's brains is really big and that that's the dominant mode, but it's tiny in comparison to these unconscious influences of the gator. And researchers who study this stuff estimate that although you can't actually quantify it, maybe 95% of all of our decisions and behavior are driven by the gator. A big function of the gator is to persuade the judge. And reason itself is an influence process. And the outcome is that information doesn't matter unless the other person is already interested. So the first job is to have them be interested before we're presenting the facts, the data, and the information that we want to give them to make a good decision. What this means though, is that they already have a hypothesis or a preference mm -hmm. that's going to influence which information they pay attention to and how they process that information. So if I was gonna put that in the world of advertising agencies, because when, when you're when you're thinking of that, is uh, it, it, it's very clear that in advertising agencies there's that gator, right? Like that wittiness of saying this would be. But there's a, also a, a very strict analysis of data, which the judge, right. right? So that happens constantly, and and you need to live with both of those, go back and forth. Yes. So I would say when you're talking about something like a television ad. The job of a television ad should be to spark curiosity and interest. And it shouldn't be to present factual data. That's the job of all of the other advertising and marketing material that comes, like say the website, right? Like oh, on digital. Yeah, you need to have that somewhere, but you don't lead with that in a TV ad because all, all that you're trying to do is make the connection and make it memorable. But well, and in support of this, there was a study of 1400 ad campaigns in the UK done by a market research agency. And they were asking, is this essentially a gator ad or is it a judge ad or does huh? it mix the two of them? And they actually followed up with the manufacturers or the companies that hired the agencies and said, how profitable was that campaign for you? And what they found was that The most profitable campaigns were the gator-only campaigns. The least profitable campaigns were the judge-only campaigns. But combining gator and judge, so when we say, say combining emotions and data, in the case of advertising, was not as successful. Adding data to an emotional campaign made it less successful than just putting creating the emotionally engaging story or um, whatever it was. But if you're then working at, in an ad agency and you have to persuade clients to produce the ad, right? The first step of that, just like the first step of any influence attempt should be focused on the gator, but then you need to still have the analysis to back it up when they're excited about it. Because the gator is effortless and fast, and the judge is deliberative and slow, always first reactions are the gator. And the, the more effortful consideration of facts and information typically doesn't happen at all. Oh, wow. When it happens, it only happens because the gator was interested and this seemed like an opportunity that was important enough, it's huge, or a threat that's real, or you have 
reached them in a context or a situation where they're already paying attention. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human, no? It's going back to the basic. Yeah. Yeah. So like even like the Super Bowl ads, right? So they need to connect emotionally. This is what we expect. Those are the ones that do well, but they're also successful because they've reached people where they're already paying attention. And we have millions and millions and millions of people watching the Super Bowl. Yes. So advertising agencies, are we losing influence? You tell me. <laughs> this is, you're the expert on I've, that. What do you think? So I have, I, I have, a, I have a thought on that. I, I feel that advertising agencies are still masters at influencing consumers. But we have a huge challenge on influencing ourselves and regulating ourselves as entities. And I think a lot of what we use to techniques we use to influence or put our message out there for consumers is something that we could potentially use internally as, as, as structures. What are your I, thoughts on that? I completely agree with you that at least that was my experience when I was working in marketing at Barbie, where I we were doing well influencing consumers, but then in our internal processes, it was a mess and including me because I didn't know how to influence people well enough when I was there, but it wasn't just that. I felt like I shouldn't have to. I felt like my job is influencing consumers and all I should do with my bosses and colleagues and teams that I worked with is like, I should just be able to give you the data and you'll make the right decision, which was obviously completely wrong. But I, but advertising agencies are also at least as I understand it, struggling to reach people where they are paying attention, right? Since we're paying so much less attention to television, for example. So I think ad, ad agencies, the best ad agencies are great at telling stories, but the stories aren't going to be influential unless we can get people to watch and listen to them. Yeah which you have an amazing chapter and I, I love it, especially because of the state or country is in. I mean, yesterday was the Oscars <laughs> where we saw, you know, Will Smith get up and, and have an aggression against the, the host, right? Chris Rock. It was insane, right? Yes. And, and it made me think, I mean, it made me think of, of the idea of deep listening, of having empathy. And you talk about that in your book, and I, I feel like sometimes as, again, in, within the advertising industry or any industry, the idea of having empathy for another industry, for the consumer, for ourselves is key, political parties. Yes, 100%. In the book, I write about the empathy challenge as this exercise in deep listening. And I am sharing how I and a lot of my students have used this exercise to reach across a political divide. I've gotten, I happen to be liberal as most people in my state and most people in my university are. I guess I don't say happen to be, that's partly why I live in the state and work at this university. But the I've gotten a lot of flack and a lot of criticism from my fellow liberals and progressives, I guess I'm progressive really, who say, why is it always us? Why do we have to be the ones to be empathetic? And I don't think it's because people like me are more angry about that. I think it's that people in general, when we feel like there's a big divide, we're so much, we have much more desire to be heard mm -hmm. than to listen. And we want the other people to listen to us because they're wrong. <laughs> Right? right. And there's also, though, so much bad blood over a lot of different issues, not just between people in political parties, but even in families. Right. Like when after the 2016 election, Thanksgiving dinners in the United States got shorter because families couldn't handle as much time around each other, their yeah. extended family members. Yeah. So. The empathy challenge for anyone who decides to try it, this critical piece is that you can only practice it if you are willing to imagine the real possibility, make the assumption that the other person is smart 
and they're well-intentioned. And that is so hard that there are lots of topics that lots of people can't even do the challenge on. But as long as you can imagine the possibility that they're smart and they're well-intentioned, you can develop your own empathy, which is the goal of the challenge, by inviting someone to talk to you about an issue that you care about, that they disagree with you, and you listen, you listen, and in, in class we do it for 15 minutes, you decide, and we do it with three different people on the same issue. And what you're listening for is their deeper values that are the reason that they hold that point of view that they do. Two things, at least two things come out of this that feel magical for a lot of people. The first one is you get an experience of what research calls the false polarization bias. Mm -hmm. You are almost certainly imagining that their views are more extreme than they actually are because that's how our mind works. If someone disagrees with us, we think that they're on the fringe, but most of us are somewhere in the middle. And so there's far less disagreement than we imagine. And then the second thing is that as you're listening to understand their values, it's almost 100% certain that you will have those same values yourself. They just might not be as important to you as some other values that are in conflict. But you're listening for their values. You're reflecting them back and saying, it sounds like you care a lot about whatever the values are. You're making a guess. And what's cool, another thing that's cool is that if you guess wrong, it's fine. They'll tell you, they'll just explain. And they will be so happy that you tried. This isn't the goal of the empathy challenge, but an outcome of listening in this way is that at some point in the future, they are much more likely to be open-minded to actually hearing what you have to say. And often, even though it's not part of the exercise, often the other person will say, so tell me, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I'm a true believer that if, if we took that angle uh, in, in this country or, or in business, like the, the, you know, the world would be much, much better. Like the simple act of talking and listening with openness, assuming, as you said, that the other person is well-intentioned and, and honest, I think would, would leave us in a better place, perhaps more in the middle but in a, in a place where there would be more agreement. Yeah, I, I actually made a mistake, I think, about this recently, though, that taught me a lot, where I posted something on Twitter that in high, and it was way too long. I, I'm not a great Twitter person <laughs> trying to figure stuff out. It was way too long. And in hindsight, there were things that I disagreed with myself on. So I it's not that I posted this brilliant thing that was perfect. I posted something that I was in the process of thinking about. And some people were like, yeah, no, you're wrong. Yeah, no, that sucks. And in a normal conversation, I would just get to say like, oh yeah, you're right. You opened my mind. Yeah, this part of it, I still agree with. And this part was definitely wrong. And this part, I just said it really badly, but I was trying to listen with empathy to all these people who are so angry at me for posting this. And it ended up that because I was responding with open-mindedness and empathy and really, really attending to some of the criticism that was mean, mm -hmm. there was wave after wave of hate that so was got out of coming. Control. It was very much out of control and I was unintentionally feeding it by giving people more to respond to and more to hate. So that's, I guess, a caveat of the empathy challenge. This is a real life thing between humans. And when you're on social media, there's so many people who are just motivated to get likes and retweets by expressing outrage. And Twitter in particular is an outrage machine. And research has found that outrage is the biggest predictor of spreading, of activation yeah. and reactions and stuff so i knew it but i forgot it yeah i mean i completely agree we deal with that a lot here at the agency i bet uh, you do yeah social media and things where we get together with what do we do do we engage do we not engage and even though we would like to engage with a positive or empathetic response at times the best course of action is just to let it go and and let it live what it needs to live you know yeah. which is normally not long but yes I, yeah. I agree. Do you? Um, I haven't. I haven't actually followed the agency's Twitter feed. Do you post humorously on the agency feed, and do you respond in that way? 
we try to have humor. Um, I think a lot of what we post is industry, things that are happening, but with our clients is really when we apply these things. Like we used to have a wireless company. You can only imagine the amount of complaints mm -hmm. and things that would fly around that. Which by the way, a wireless company, hint, hint, plays a huge role on this invitation to talk and listen in the country, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, for ourselves, we, we try to focus on, you know, having conversations like this, being open, also understanding the flaws of the of the industry and, and trying to make it better. And and what 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 would our role be in climate change, in COVID times, in you know, I think we have a bigger role than normally what we we do. So Yeah. Can because you brought up climate change, I would I would love to mention that what you may already know about and people listening who work in other agencies may know about but some people not that there is a movement among ad agencies to pledge not to work with big oil companies and this was started by a couple of people who worked with 350.org which is the group that i'm supporting for this year with what's overall going to be by the end of all of the book thing, half of the profits that I make from this book. And this was a big book deal. So this is a big commitment for me and I'm very excited about it. Oh, the wow. idea is that ad agencies have so much power individually and collectively and especially collectively. And this is an example of how all of us have so much power collectively when we can mobilize and when we can coordinate. And that big oil has a history of greenwashing and pretending that they're doing great stuff environmentally, but they're just barely, barely, barely paying attention to it. And then they're spending a ton of, they're paying more money to advertise the sustainable things that they do than to actually do anything sustainable. And if ad agencies step back from participating in that, then they won't be able to do that greenwashing that's allowing their business to continue in the way that it is in the destruction of the planet. Right, because that's their big communication engine. I thought it was super interesting. I think it's great you're doing that. I think my 10-year-old daughter would be thankful for that. And Is, and is went... she a climate activist? Oh, yes. I mean, kids, awesome. kids normally it's very easy for them and transparently look for what's good and what makes sense. Normally we need to put our kids hat if we're downing something. Yeah. Um, Can I say something about the kids hat? Because framing is this idea that so many people in advertising use and politics and visionary leadership. And it's just it's naming something. And essentially it's giving something a name that will spark interest, intrigue, curiosity, often there's humor, whatever. But the key to doing that is that a kid should understand it. And that's something that especially people in roles like mine, right? Like professors don't try to make things intelligible to kids. Yeah. But, but almost all of us, almost all of the time should be making anything that we care about sharing as a good idea make it intelligible even i shouldn't use the word intelligible right so simple that a kid can understand it and interesting enough that they would want to i love the examples you have you know since you since you brought it up and i think it's very relevant that you have in your book on i think i think my memory it was climate change and taxes the, yeah. the death tax and the way they framed climate change, how that changed the narrative and how people, the perception of people and ultimately the decision in Congress, whether it was for or against it. So I think it's amazing what you're saying. Yeah, uh, thank you. And a, a big um, shift that's happened just recently as you and I are talking and, and Putin is invading Ukraine, at the beginning, when that happened at the beginning of February, the dominant frame was the conflict the Ukraine conflict, but that frame said, this is something that's maybe like a fight that your parents are having and you can sit back and watch it. Both might be wrong and it's not a big deal. And there's been a concerted effort to shift the frame to war or invasion that says this is a huge deal and maybe we should be involved in trying to end this problem. Yeah, I've also heard, and again, um, 
heard, heard the idea of, of Russia, Russia's invasion versus Putin invading, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't want this to get political, but it, it also it's a very important difference on how you how you say it. Um, right, right. Especially if you are wanting to persuade Russians to be against the war. Correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, interesting topic. I had, I had, I have some questions that are going back to when you were at Barbie and 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 the reason why you left. I think you answered some of that in in the sense of that triggered where you are today, which was you trying to influence within within the organization. Yeah, you know, and this also comes back to framing. In fact, that it's it's easy not to realize that you have your own internal frames all the time. And all of us have a way that we're already framing our work, for example. And when I realized I'm working at Mattel and I realized that my frame for my work is that I'm selling pieces of plastic that are going to go into a landfill. We were selling two Barbie dolls a second. And I was looking at my life and saying, what would real success look like? Is it selling three Barbie dolls per second? No, I can't get behind that. And I, I couldn't shake that frame. It, my work felt meaningless. But at the same time, I had friends and mentors in the organization who were, ha, framed their work quite differently. And my closest friend there, his frame was, we're making kids smile. He was so happy with that. And he still works a lot with toys. And then my mentor there didn't care about toys I think she didn't care about kids even, but right. she cared about mentoring and she framed her work as developing junior people. And that's what she was there for. And that's what brought her to work every day that my colleague here at Yale, I forgot if she was in your program or not, but Amy Resnuski has really interesting research that she's where she's looked at how people frame their jobs in terms of, is it a job? Is it a career? Or is it a calling? And it depends on your situation in life. It could, and of course, what your actual role is. And it also depends on your internal mindset. But people who feel like they have a job don't do much to go above and beyond at work. And work can be fine, but they're really looking for their satisfaction outside of work. So they're looking for, you know, what they call work-life balance, although I hate that frame. And then yeah. people who have a career invest a lot in work and they're focused on the future and they're focused on what they can get in the future. And then people who feel they have a calling give a lot at work and they have the most satisfaction. So they work hardest and have the greatest satisfaction. So when you're looking, for example, to recruit people to your team, The ideal is that you're able to connect with people who feel that whatever work that is that you're hiring for is a calling for them to do. Yeah. Yeah. That example you gave me is 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 it, it hits home because we, you know we we work with companies that give credits, high interest credits to people, and the way they frame themselves, especially also in Mexico and, and, and to Hispanics. But the way they see it is we want to give the opportunity for people to have access to things that otherwise they would not have. And that in a way yeah. you know, is greater, but we're trying to do something good. So, I mean, that's debatable and, and, and everything, but it's... Well, it's and, it, and it just depends on the, the individual employees internalizing or not that frame, but that's the idea. Can I ask you about the frame of Latinx? How do you feel about that frame? As an agency or as Francisco? If you can speak on behalf of the agency, I'm curious about both, but definitely Francisco. I think as, a, as an agency, we're exploring it. It is a term, a recent term that has come up and there's debate around it. There's, there's a lot of clients of ours that come with briefs that want to speak to the Latinx. We're obviously as an agency all about inclusivity and that's a little bit of how they frame it. But it's not something that as Hispanics, I would say people have really adopted. In, in, you know, in Spanish language, we're very accustomed to having female and male you know, objects and, and things just because of how the language is. And this indeed is an attempt again to kind of bring everything and level set as a group, but, and, and we're open to it. We, we, we really, are curious and are exploring and building things towards it. But we're also, I don't want to say the world's skeptical, but reading 
the culture and people on on how they take it. And and my my opinion is that there's 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 people that yeah, Latinx is fine, but I'm Hispanic. You know, it, it's you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's nothing's gonna happen. But it's interesting, and 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 that topic that that you bring up, there's a there's a a chapter where you 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 talk about negotiating while a female, and you have an example of Jennifer Lawrence, and I couldn't stop also to think. Obviously, I think you know, women have been empowered to to negotiate, and are, and I think what she did was amazing, getting those couple of million dollars more the next time she negotiated, and then given them to charity and stuff. But it also happens in the, in the if you think of immigrants who are just grateful to have a job, you know, like it, yeah. it also felt like women, like I'm just grateful to be here, but I'm not gonna negotiate my salary or I'm not, I'm not gonna go negotiate the value of what I'm worth. It happens a lot within the immigrant community. Have you ever thought of that? Yes, I 100% agree with you. And my husband is an immigrant, by the way. And so he's Arab. And so a lot of issues with immigrants and race and also religion for him come up. And even though I'm a white person with lots of privilege as a Yale professor, I get to have probably more conversations about that and also just get to witness more racism than most white people do who live yeah. in this country. The idea that people with privilege are more comfortable negotiating is absolutely true and it's pervasive and there are studies on things like car well definitely car negotiations there's some big ones finding and these are between white people and black people that i'm thinking of finding that black people have a harder time negotiating deals that are as good as white people in these studies where they just get sent with the same kind of script to the same car dealers. There's so if you are facing situations like that, it's it it's not just about immigration, but immigrants too. If you feel like you've gotten some backlash, as women also have, but it's it's different for all of us, right? In these different situations. But if you feel that you have been punished or shamed for advocating for yourself, then it's easy to not advocate for yourself. In addition to that feeling of like, I'm just lucky to be here and I don't want to rock the boat. But there's also this training that we get from our parents. And there's a sociologist named Jessica Calarco, I'm a huge fan of. And she had a big study in a school, very long-term longitudinal study, looking at these middle school kids to see which kids were advocating for themselves. They're asking for help or they're asking to get out of punishments or you know, asking for extra time, whatever they needed to be happier and more successful at school. And she's just looking at socioeconomic class. And there were kids from middle-class families like the kids that I grew up with, maybe upper middle class. And then there are kids from working class families more like in a situation like mine. And the difference between my upbringing and theirs is that my mom came from an upper middle class family and she just happened to be poor because partly because she was kind of a hippie. So I didn't get that training that a lot of especially immigrant kids do and kids from other working class families where their parents are telling them to be self-reliant, mm. to not ask for help. And you telling kids things like you, you just need to work harder to get ahead and that's your life, where kids from more privileged backgrounds, especially white kids and kids whose parents have navigated the system are getting trained that privilege is partially negotiated. And, and it's okay to ask for and advocate for what you want. And we're growing up and we end up still in similar situations where at work, people who already have more privilege because of their nationality or their gender or their race are more, or their social status or in the hierarchy, their professional status, mm -hmm. they feel more comfortable advocating for themselves and asking for what they want and drawing boundaries and saying no. And everyone who feels less powerful or less privileged holds back for lots of different reasons. And that's a huge reason for me writing this book. It's in school, what they call it, that is the hidden curriculum. Yeah. 
I've been in advertising for a little bit over 20 years, and I have to confess that when I started in this business, I started as a copywriter in the in the creative field, and it was known that Hispanic agencies would make less money than general market agencies, or what they called general market agencies back in the day. And in my mind, I always thought to myself, but we're working double. We are doing TV scripts in English and Spanish, so we are able to sell them, and sometimes adapting those TV scripts. So why is our, what are our budgets so punished, right? Or, or so, so different from, from general market? And it's not until now that I ask that question openly. And I feel it's the truth. And when I read that chapter and what you're saying, it made me think it's so true. You know, it's like, you need to bring it up and ask. Yeah, yeah. And and that's this small piece of it, right? Like, ultimately, what we need to solve is racism and gender inequity and all of these awful things that we're talking about. So ultimately, I I believe so strongly in the Spider-Man doctrine that with great power comes great responsibility. And so all of us who are on the path of becoming influential or who already have influence, we have a responsibility to make things make the system better for others in the system who don't have the privileges that we do. And even learning about influence is a privilege, right? right. And anyone who doesn't understand how it works, we need to address the systemic problems for them. And that even includes when I say systemic, not just at a societal level, but like say all of us who are working as managers, once we know that someone with less privilege is less likely to ask us for resources or help or to negotiate, that means that we are required not to wait until someone asks us for resources or raises or whatever they need, that as soon as one person asks, we need to try to even the playing field with the other people on our team. Because otherwise we're just rewarding privilege and then expanding inequity, even among the small group of people we work with. Yes, I love it. And putting that out there, whether it's in the form of a book, a podcast, just speaking about it on a social occasion, I think, is is part of the change because we are being more vocal about it even even doing the analysis of of what you consume whether it's you think about music food culture and the value that that brings to you as a person in general that should start putting the perspective of of things in advertising i keep telling pete hey the model of of we could work for free and just pay us for how much you use our app, right? As a business model. Mm-hmm. Today, digital allows you to be able to capture that. That that could land in the fairness model. It's like if you're using it and it's working for your brand or the message, just, you know, pay for it. So that's it. Yeah, yeah. And what you're saying about, I didn't know that Hispanic agencies get lower fees for advertising than mainstream agencies and it makes me mad and i guess i'm also not surprised and i've heard because for me as a professional speaker i go around the world and do various events and i know a lot of speakers and the speakers who speak on issues of diversity and inclusion are some of the most sought after and some of the least well compensated. I don't mean the individuals, at least the ones that I know, many of them have a high standard, they're professional, but they so the, so they do gigs where they get paid a lot, but there's so many that pay nothing. And large companies asking speakers to come and talk and educate their people about diversity but they're not willing to pay for it at all. And that makes me so angry. And then people who have this expertise are torn because they want to be able to help. And they're angry that they also want to get paid, but they're, you know, you don't know, should you go and do the talk anyway as some pro bono thing in hopes that the money will come for someone in the future. So, yeah, I don't know. It just makes me mad so far. It's a, but it's a good challenge and, and again, you know, makes you mad, but also to, to your words, like having that empathy or where they're coming from, like their budgets, the, the size of the market, etc. But at the end of the day, the work is the same. You know, these speakers still need to get on a plane and show up and present right to that. But it is it is something that's worth discussing and addressing and putting out there in the universe to see how we can influence in some way or another. 
for change. <laughs> yeah, and and the diversity is a very very specific hot topic that all of us need to be calling out every time we see somebody just paying lip service to the issue, right? So the question is for those clients who say we don't have a budget for this, then you know, we just need to ask things like, okay, well so what do you pay speakers to come and speak on other topics, right? Like right. if I come and talk about influence, are you going to pay me or are you going to say, no, we don't have any money? So. Yeah. You also yeah. Because, because again you're you're assuming that that person is transparent, is honest and you're giving them the opportunity and you're just guiding them through those with those questions you're like, well yeah, I do pay them the same. And they might come to the conclusion of perhaps I'm not being fair. Maybe. I mean, I don't I don't expect um that that happens often where suddenly they just say, "Oh yeah, you're right. We should pay our diversity speakers." But that but that speaks to another big issue and influence that most people don't understand. If you are hoping to convert somebody to mm -hmm. change their mind, that well, first of all, that's not where you should usually be focusing your influence efforts and usually you should be focusing on mobilizing the willing. So, whoever's open-minded already, focus mm -hmm. on helping them take action. Okay. because that's much easier and that is the outcome that you wanted is action rather than changing minds which is way harder but conversion doesn't happen in conversations it happens in relationships and sometimes it happens over multiple relationships so just bringing up the idea of equity across agencies right so if a company is hiring a hispanic marketing and advertising agency asking so do you have so what are you paying Ogilvy or you know whoever else you have working for you and then over time having these conversations with multiple people and and also putting a spotlight on it potentially publicly but with speakers asking the questions and just seeding the seeding these questions and then also drawing boundaries right and just without when when I'm saying no for whatever reason it's typically without um rancor but like I said no when I was offered to come and teach at a school in Moscow a couple of years ago which is now on the sanctioned list because it was run by Russian oligarchs and sometimes it's very costly to say no to situations that don't align and that was actually they were offering more money than I had ever been paid for any gig and it could have paid for my daughter's school tuition for that year. So we need to be more clear and more patient and more more clear about when we see things that aren't fair and also just having strong boundaries when we can afford to to not be working with people whose ideals and values really don't match with ours. Totally. And I, and I love the way you're it's very empowering for me it was very empowering how your book starts speaking of, you know, to be influential, you need to start by saying no, to be comfortable with saying no. So I love that. And, and I love that you bring it up with this example. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So I, I, I don't want to finish the, the, the podcast without talking something that I loved in a shift on the way you give classes or lecture, which is the, the notion of being a host. And it's certainly something I felt when I was with you. I felt Oh, very welcome, you. something that I was just happy to be there and it was very collaborative. But again, as, a, as advertising agencies, sometimes, again, reading that part of the book, I was like, that's what we are. We should be hosts, we're service, and we're sometimes guiding our clients to make decisions the best way possible. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And it's interesting to think of it in the context of an advertising agency. So this frame of, we were talking about how do you define your job, right? And I talked a little bit about Barbie, but when I came to Yale and I'm teaching this class on influence and persuasion, I had a frame that I was excited about, but it was actually, it was actually kind of shitty. And it was that I was teaching Jedi mind tricks. And the reason that I repeated that frame, like it's understandable to a kid and they're interested. And anytime you tell people that's your job, they're like, oh my God, tell me more, right? But but the, the reality of that frame was that I saw myself as the star of the show. And in classes or workshops, 
I would come in and try to be dazzling, center of attention, and I really had all of my attention focused on myself, even though I didn't realize it. And it, with my MBA class especially, the, the students and my TAs suffered because I had a lot of very rigid rules, including I tried to, at one point, although the school wouldn't let me, <laughs> so embarrassing, I wanted to lock the doors as soon as class started so that nobody could come in late. So I wasn't allowed to do that. You're ruining the show, right? And right. I wasn't allowed to do that, but... How I, dare I, you? How dare you? Not yes, how dare you, you terrible person. <laughs> I asked TAs, to when someone came in late, they would go and whisper to that person something to quietly shame them. Like, do you think you'll be able to come in next time on time or something like that? Like, it was so bad, Francisco. And I'm so embarrassed. But anyway, I, I felt like you're interrupting my show and I'm the diva. So the other thing is that I don't teach Jedi mind tricks because you can't just force other people to do what you want to do. When Danny Meyer, the restaurateur behind a um, bunch of fancy restaurants in New York and also the Shake Shack, Shane came to Yale, he asked us, what, what would it be like if you realized you're all in the hospitality industry? And when I internalized that idea for my job, I realized that life would be better and my class would be better for everyone if I saw myself as hosting a party rather than teaching a class or Jedi mind tricks. And that it was better for me, better for the TAs, better for the students. And I radically changed how I was doing things. And the biggest part was that I no longer graded attendance or even took attendance. Because if you're a guest at a party, you don't have to come. Right? right? And I made sure that I would never shame anyone for anything ever, whether it's a student, whether it's a TA, because you're like, if you're hosting a party, and I gave myself a lot of slack too, if you're hosting a party, it's fine. Like, you know, if you burn the dessert, people are just gonna laugh, right? Or if you're, you have a guest, they arrive late, they drop a glass of wine and break it and stay in your couch. It's just kind of funny. It's all okay. And you're also ultimately not responsible for their experience. You can just create the context in which it's possible that they might have a great experience, but it's not up to you. And I would play music beforehand and I would stick around after informally. And I asked a lot more questions. I did a lot less talk. I did a lot more asking and my TAs would, I asked them to come in early and learn everybody's names and make small talk and greet them when they come in. So even though I don't take attendance, I have on any particular day, 90% of the students show up and many of them never miss a class. And they are so much happier because they choose to be there. So I don't know what it might look like to be hosting in an ad agency, but it seems like it would be a great fit. And one little piece that I can offer connected to this is that the most successful Hollywood movie pitches are the pitches that are collaborative. And this is from a research study that I think it was a six years long study by um, negotiations professor Kimberly Elsbach that was looking at which pitches get green lighted by Hollywood studios. And it was just the number one biggest thing was, did they bring the studio executives into the creative process to be hatching ideas together? And that's a kind of hosting sort of mentality. Yeah, I mean, I love I love the notion of having clients that wanna be with us because they wanna have fun and they wanna feel welcome and it's warm. And you know, of course, Avocados from Mexico, Yvonne, She's very much involved. She's a good example of what you're saying. Like she loves the brainstorm, loves bringing ideas. You feel like a team and that we all have the same problem. Uh, yeah. There's other instances where, you know, we are, we are listening to the same music and the same vibe where other instances, you know, is the agency's problem or is the client's problem, which is also horrible. Agencies that think that way, right? Right. So I love this, this part of being a host and welcoming and you know having the feeling the gratitude of having them their presence with you so that's so lovely yeah so i know i know you have 
a podcast after this. You're super busy uh, right now. One more question, and I think it has to go back back to a little bit to the oil and the responsibility that we have as ad agencies when, when it comes to influencing. And you talked about when influence becomes manipulation, and you also shared a very personal story when you were in Italy and you hopped into a car with some strangers. And, and the responsibility of us as agents is to not become those guys that have our alternate motives to either make money or, 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 or do any other things. How, you know, when, you, when you're, I mean, you talked about it, influence is a big responsibility. Is there anything else we should take from this so that we do not become manipulators versus positive influencers in the world? So the money part is really complicated, right? Because money isn't a bad motive. It's just a transactional motive. And money is at stake in many, many, many of our business transactions. And I, I believe the question is, if we're talking about money, are we trying to take all of the money that's on the potential table? Or are we trying to take as much as possible? Or are we trying to leave where both sides are happy? And for me in a negotiation, including the ones that involve money, I want everybody to be happy. And in order to do that, I need to know about money or whatever is at stake, how much is going to make me happy and how much is going to make me unhappy. And then I don't worry about what the other person or the other side is getting, except that if they're going to be unhappy, that's definitely a problem. And ideally, we're going to be creating a long-term relationship where we're all going to do well overall in the future, which is which ends up with all of us making more money. So I don't see money as a, a negative motivation, but I guess for everyone working in advertising, or marketing or sales, there's this one specific red flag that's the most common one in transactional kinds of influence that get, gets used a lot, which is urgency. Mm -hmm. And it's all of the, you know, like buy now, today only, while supplies last. But but clients and agencies will do that to each other on both sides too. Like you have to make this decision by X time period and we rush each other. And anytime we're rushing each other, we send that person into gator territory where mm -hmm. they're making decisions without without having enough mental bandwidth to use the judge and be confident about the decision they made later. And what happens when decisions are made under urgency is there's a lot of buyer's remorse and mm -hmm. then people are trying to get out of the deals that they made with us. So it's not just that it's not cool and it's not nice to put someone into that frenetic frame of mind to have them pull the trigger, but it's a terrible situation to end up in when somebody regrets the decision that they made with you. So something very respectful that we can do that's super easy is just always plan to give people as much time as possible. Yeah, and an and out, and I think That works for consumers, but also us as an industry, I think we're as admirable. And just to give a little bit the audience some context, you guys were waiting for a bus, you jumped into a car and, and these bad guys, but then your friend started shouting and, and expressing that she did not want to be there uh, versus going with the flow, right? Like sometimes yeah. working on projects, we're like, oh, it's okay. But if it's not okay for you, speak about it. So if it's yeah. not to do a deal where you're pressuring somebody to buy, then perhaps suggest adding an out or an opt-out option or, or things like that. But as an, as an industry, I think speaking up, that lesson that you learned that, that day was, was very, very powerful and the influence you have as, a, as an individual. Thank you. Yeah, and the, the being clear about what you want and saying no clearly is, you know, it's one of the most important messages in the book. And I guess just for all of us individuals who are working in advertising, marketing, sales, we're, we're in this gray area where a lot of people hate us because of some assumptions that they make and also because of some really awful people who they've had interactions with who are trying to manipulate them and typically take their money. And it it's easy for a lot of the people that I've seen and definitely for me to deceive ourselves into thinking that things are okay and what we're doing isn't that bad, where it's it's us telling ourselves our own stories 
because we want to be able to take the money that is being offered to us in some way. So self-deception is almost impossible <laughs> to identify because you, by definition, you don't know that you're deceiving yourself. But I think we can ask ourselves, just continue to ask ourselves the question of, you know, what does my heart say? And do I, do I feel good about the work that I'm doing? And that includes who I work with, who my clients are, and what is it, what are the great ideas I'm trying to spread or what are the things I'm trying to sell? And it's, it's just an ongoing question. And I believe also we shouldn't fault ourselves too much for whatever mistakes we've made in the past and decisions we might regret, but just focus on the future. Yeah, it all makes you grow. Well, Zoe, thank you so, so much. The book is Influence is your superpower. You guys need to get it. Like a lot of the things that we reference here is, you know, this post, this podcast kind of tells you the story, but the book really gets into it. We will have the links on the notes of the podcast. The hashtag is hashtag influence is your superpower. If you want to find, you know, comments or people that have posted about it. So is there any place that people can reach out to you with questions? Just connect. Yeah. So I'm easy to find. The easiest way to find me is LinkedIn. My name is Zoe Chance. And if you want more information, I have a website, zoechance.com. Francisco, thank you so much. It's very fun talking with you. And I appreciate also that you read the book so carefully. Thank I you. Love it. And I, I really had a lot of fun and it was very enlightening for me. So I thank you for putting that out in the world. Thank you so much. So this has been season four, episode two of Loud and Clear. Please make sure you follow us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts and ideas on the podcast in anything marketing, technology, and advertising. This is Francisco Cárdenas in the production Rolf Ruiz. Thank you so much. Until next time. <laughs>